the hardest part about running, I tell people, anybody is going to work or putting your shoes on and getting out the door. And once you do that, you're going to get excited about having fun. And I tell people, my philosophy, run to win. It doesn't mean get in first place or the first race. It means get the best out of yourself in everything that you do. So you have to tell people that, hey, set a realistic goal, be around kind people. And as long as you do that, great things will happen. American Olympic legend Meb Kaplesky knows something about staying composed when things are tough. Meb was the first person to win the trifecta of the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon, and receive a silver medal in the Olympics. In fact, he represented Team USA in four separate Olympic Games. Meb Kaplesky wins the Boston! <laughs> Many people are familiar with Meb's accomplishments on the track, but his running career was by no means a sure thing. He was born during the height of the deadly and brutal Eritrean war in 1975. His inspirational story gives a new perspective on how to think about being composed at every step of the journey. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis. I was the third oldest of my parents. Uh, Eritrea was difficult, where you have to go to the well to get water and carry it home. And you have to collect that and you can't, you can't come home with empty-handed and mm. because otherwise you're gonna starve or not cook, be able to cook the food or boil your water. So that was difficult, no schools, no opportunities. And my dad was wanted by the Ethiopian military and my mom had the courage to tell him, hey, you gonna be prison or gonna get killed? My dad didn't want to leave, but my dad and my mom kind of tell her, hey, you have to do this. And he has to walk over 225 miles all the way to Sudan, from Eritrea, go north to Sudan. And luckily, he made it, and it took him seven days in the wilderness of Africa, and where there's a lot of scorpions, snakes, lions, and militaries. Meb's parents were instrumental in helping their kids escape the hardships of Eritrea, and their ability to remain composed, even in the most heinous of circumstances, has stayed with Meb throughout his life. My parents understood if they can, they need to define their own future. And thank God for my dad, but also my mom for been really work hard. You know, she committed to, to get the best out of their her kids because sometimes she has to go 98 kilometers on her foot, you know, to be able to get you know the oxen back to another village where they can have a meal because the drought was so bad. So there was famine, drought, and, and uh, difficult times in Eritrea. Meb and his family escaped the civil war. They eventually reunited, and they made it to the United States where they settled permanently in Southern California. It was there in San Diego when a teacher at Meb's junior high school, Coach Dick Lord, called out his potential to be an Olympic champion. And I have all the brothers that ran and that had that t-shirt that says Roosevelt Junior Hamad Club t-shirt and I wanted to be like them. So I ran as hard as I could and he looked at the clock and says 520, he says, you're going to go to the Olympics. When you were growing up in Eritrea, had you even heard of the Olympics? Did you know what that was? Did you, had you ever seen any Olympic races on the television? Had you ever even watched television when you were growing up in this environment? Sort of say that, but Caroline, I was 10 years old the first time I saw TV and it was mind-blowing for me because 
I could not understand how the people fit inside the TV. So I have to go behind the TV to see if the people were there. That was my first interaction. So no, I did not hear about the Olympics. And I went that evening, I went and asked my dad, what are the Olympics? He's like, what do you do? What happened? He's like, well, the coach of the Lord said, uh, you're going with the Olympics. Uh, you know, what is that? He's, uh, he explained to me how the world gets uh, peace and harmony every four years to get a friendly competition. And that's how I learned about what the Olympics were. Meb went on to be an NCAA champion at UCLA and a few short years later bagged silver for the United States at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. But he's quick to point out that these feats aren't just about God-given talent, as he puts it. He's had to practice being composed in conflicting ways. Just think about a marathon. He has to be mentally present for every stride, every breath, while being just as deliberate about the totality of 26.2 miles. And that takes focus. Composure is to be able to do what you can control and stay cool while everybody else is hyping it up. You see, Olympics is the Olympic, but you got to do one step at a time. Sometimes you don't even know making the Olympic team is harder than the Olympics. But, you know, you got to believe in yourself, you got to believe in your training, and you got to believe the people that behind the scene that get you there. And on race day, it's more like a celebration. You know, be in the moment, make a calculated decisions because you cannot be somebody telling your ear, hey, somebody's hurting. You have to make a calculated decision to say, hey, I'm at the start, I'm healthy, I'm going to get it down to 10 people, I'm going to get down to six people, I'm going to get it down to three people so I can qualify. But at the same token, you know, the body sometimes fights. You don't know if you're going to make it or should you make those moves because if you go hard now, somebody else from behind can come and snap you at the finish line. So those are the decisions and um, fuel efficiency, you can say. You cannot be too aggressive. You got to be calm, composed, and be able to just wait it out a little bit. And you don't want to be the first one to make a move and, and become a sacrificial. So you have to understand the environment, understand the competitors, understand the course, and hopefully the key to success again is preparation. Staying poised is easy when we're winning, but the true test is how we react when things start to fall apart. Meb was running the 2013 New York City Marathon, a race that was supposed to be a joyous homecoming for all runners after the previous year's marathon was canceled because of Hurricane Sandy. But two thirds in, Meb experienced a breakdown of body and mind. At 19.2 miles, I was depleted. I had nothing left. It, my mind said, lift your right hip, just like run, next stride. And my body says, not this time. And I'm like, what is happening? And I really have to walk. And it went back to memory again, like my dad walking over 225 miles, the Boston bombing, the Hurricane Sandy cancellation of the New York City Marathon in 2012. I'm not winning now, but I also want to be able to finish to show grit, to not give up. Because when you start a project, you want to be able to finish to the best that you can. And I, you know, I start walking, you know, I talk about sometimes how fast I run under five minutes per mile for each consecutive mile for 26.2 miles. That mile took me double the time, 9.58, I believe it was. But, you know, run, jog, walk, whatever it is. But you have to tell your mind, you're going to get to the finish line. And so many runners encourage me, come on, Meb, I'm stretching. Come on and go. You can do it. You can do it. I'm trying. But fortunately for me, I ran into Mike Cassidy, another competitor that I met that morning. He said, come on, you can do it. And then we help each other, encourage each other, going to the race. And I finished. 
the race, holding hand in hand with Mike Cassidy. And it was just very well celebrated because it's not how fast you run, but getting to the finish line to the best that you can on that day. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the creative content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're exploring different mindsets, and we're unpacking the science behind not just how, but why we think and act the way we do. Tapping into these insights can empower us to regain a sense of control in today's uncertain times and help leaders inform and refine their decision-making. In season five, we are building on everything that we've learned, but we're tackling a different type of obstacle, ourselves. In this episode, we're talking about what it means to remain composed, not just in the short term, but for the long haul, for the marathons. But how do our brains work to process at once the acute and long-term pressures of the modern world? We wanted to understand just how we're wired and how we can help better learn to be centered. It's easy to be hard on ourselves when we lose composure. It's easy to quickly jump to self-criticism. And part of quickly regaining composure is actually having that compassion to say, it's okay. We all have those moments. I'm going to get re-centered. I'm going to know that everyone is struggling and working on this. And just as I wouldn't overly judge someone harshly for a moment of lack of composure, I'm going to use that compassion to help calm myself and get myself back to that center place. My name is Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. I am the Chief Innovation Officer at BetterUp, where I lead our scientific activities and product innovation. We have an MD by training, fMRI research, studying the brain, and uh, get to think about how to help people do their best work. Gabriella's latest book, Tomorrow Mind, which she co-authored with psychologist Marty Seligman, delves into the evolution of the human brain and explains how and why we react to different types of pressure. I want to kind of draw on some of your research. And if you were to put a human brain in an MRI and it was a brain from, you know, the earliest humans and one today, would there be much difference? Yeah, I think it would be very hard to pick up differences. I think it's humbling, awe-inspiring to kind of just touch our head, feel our own brains and really think about the fact that that organ, that three pound pale pink organ is basically the same one that we were working with as hunters and gatherers 10,000 years ago. Um, We have to now repurpose it for a completely different universe, but it's the same hardware that we're working with Mm. um, to, you know, to any perceptible degree. Are our brains actually conducive to being composed or is it anathema to how our brains are actually wired and and how they 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 function and service so part of the very unique capability set that we have with the human brain is the ability to step back from our emotions to step back from these hardwired reactions Um, And to use our kind of executive control network, our our frontal lobes, to help us get recentered and and recomposed. Um, Part of the skill of developing as an adult in our maturation and in all kinds of coaching and therapy is getting better at that, getting better at taking a step back from 
uh, automatic reactions, emotional reactions, understanding them, reappraising them, being able to come to a more centered place and then move forward from there. So we have sort of a capacity to learn to be more composed, but it's not necessarily that something people are either born with or it's innate to the you know, to the to the fabric of mm. how our brains are made up. We can absolutely learn this. Uh, there's no one who can't learn to be more composed and centered, but it may be a little more challenging for some of us than for others, depending on longstanding patterns of thoughts and behavior. Part of Gabriella's work is about thriving with resilience, and in particular, helping us all find balance amidst the volatility of life. I wanted to understand more about how our brains are wired to help or hamper us as we navigate the kinds of duality that Meb deals with in a race, both the marathon and the sprint. How are our brains set up to be able to deal with short-term thinking and long-term thinking at the same time? Because there feels like there's sort of an oxymoron there. Oh, I love this question. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to think about it. So one of them is this idea of the different brain networks we have and the fact that multiple brain networks can be functioning uh, in, in parallel. So for example, you may notice that as we're having this conversation, you're, or if you're listening to this conversation, your brain's kind of drifting off into daydreaming a bit. Um, you may be uh, out for a walk. So you're still walking even though you're daydreaming, but your your thoughts are drifting. So we have the capacity to be consciously engaged in certain kinds of behaviors, even while our thoughts are off wandering. And one of the things that they do best when they're off wandering is plan for the future. Mm. Um, it's a big part of what happens when we start to daydream. And so I think that that idea of being very focused in the moment and every stride is perfect as you get better as a runner, you're able to do that a little more automatically and actually both be doing that and be thinking about what's next in the race at the same time and then periodically bringing your full conscious attention back to the moment and, and to what's happening right in front of you. Just the ability to plan for the long term is such a unique human skill. Uh, it's something we've studied a lot. There's lots of ways it can go wrong for us, but it's also something we can get a lot better at. And we see that um, the most resilient people are really good at this exact kind of balancing between the forest and the trees, the big picture and the focus in the moment alternating back and forth between those, not getting stuck in any given tree um, and also not being stuck at the forest level and kind of an analysis paralysis. They know what to do and where to get started, but also how to shift gears if they need to. That is our permanent future reality of constant, unpredictable, ambiguous change. A lot of good things happen when you accept that, but it is a lot to swallow and it is a very different mindset to undertake than saying it's, it's just about this one battle. But accepting change is constant doesn't mean that our brains are naturally wired to embrace it. And according to Gabriella, that's why trying to practice being composed can be such a challenge. What does a composed mindset look like in 2023? So I think this, going back to this idea of cognitive agility, um, we are able to be scanning the environment, picking up on important signals of change, registering them as important, which can have emotional components to it. Being able to step back from that to from a centered place, really think prospectively about how likely that 
reality is to start to play out and then making informed decisions about where to focus and knowing that as soon as we do that, we have to go back up to the horizon level and and keep our ears out and about and really almost operating at both in a dialectical fashion at both altitudes. Um, In many ways, it's more about the balance between the two than about staying on, you know, in one level plane. It's actually interesting to be able to see um, a commodity business through its ups and uh, downs, but then be able to be balanced all the way through, right? So a balanced conversation. Um, I think probably two or three years ago, a lot of the conversation was, you know, purely around uh, energy sustainability and climate change and how to how to get to zero carbon energy fast. Mm-hmm. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has actually um, woken people up to the fact that um, energy is a geopolitical commodity. And I kind of describe it in, in short form as energy is geopolitics, geopolitics is energy. I'm Patabi Sashadri. I lead our global energy practice for BCG and been in the energy business now 25 years. Uh, never been a more exciting moment to be here. Part of Patabi's role is to help the energy sector navigate the mounting pressure and changes occurring today and to deliver on expectations for cleaner, greener and more affordable energy. So you've been in the business, you said, for 25 years. What has changed the most for you during that time? Obviously, we're aware of, you know, the new technologies that have emerged. But for you personally, what's changed the most? I think what's changed the most is watching an industry go through a slowish transition that then becomes very fast-paced in, a, in about a two to three year time horizon. And, you know, you energy companies today are dealing with, you know, complex, integrated issues, like a lot of businesses today, but it sort of feels almost more acute with the energy sector because I think there is this existential you know, problem and an existential crisis that we face, which is climate change. So what is the current conversation within energy companies around the topic of transforming to meet sustainability goals? Yeah. So, you know, I just came back from Sierra Week in Houston. It is one of the biggest industry conferences. And the the conversation over the last 12 months, especially, has been changing a fair bit to this notion we call the energy trilemma. Um, So call it the three legs of the stool. Um, It's always easy to uh, solve uh, one one unit problems, as we learned in high school, but three unit problems are a little bit more difficult to solve. So the three being um, energy security. The second one is affordability. Energy actually affects everything that we do in life. So the cheaper and more affordable it can be, the better off we'll all be. And the third one is around sustainability, Um, having it be zero carbon, um, and climate friendly as a solution. So those three pieces trying to solve them together is is really the burning set of issues. As many as a billion people around the world don't have energy access and poverty exacerbates the issue. And then of course the energy sector itself has to meet these long-term marathon challenges while also operating in the modern world, which is full of short-term volatility that can disrupt even the most steadfast strategists. Companies today operating in environments with so much volatility. How should CEOs, how should leaders in the energy sector be managing external perceptions and public policy and all of this uncertainty while also staying focused on the realities of actually operating a business? 
day to day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this has come up in, in many um, CEO conversations, uh, Caroline. So if you all of a sudden have the Russian invasion of Ukraine and energy prices went bananas, and now you're operating in a completely different environment and trying to, to reset your three, five, and 10-year capital plans. The, one of the ways that a CEO described this to me is when we are in those extreme situations, literally all of our flaws are like it come to haunt us right all the little things that you thought work just fine in your company you know they all actually show up in those moments in the worst possible ways hmm. we all have a, a mode in which we are happy steady stable and make the best decisions that's like the that's our 95 percent mode right catch me at my best hmm. then the under duress situations the last five percent you know uh, this is where you know people react differently to uh, to what is flying at them, and making sure that we have a point of recognition on: Am I operating in my ninety five percent mode or my five percent mode? And trying to correct for that. Volatility is increasingly a part of the modern world. We're not experiencing black swan events, but rather we're grateful for the pockets of time when these black swan events don't feel like they're coming at us back to back. But all of these geopolitical and supply chain up and downs pale to the existential threat of climate change and the urgency that it entails. Every moment, every step where we keep our composure and get it right, builds momentum towards the bigger goal. It's a reality that's not lost on Patabi. It's absolutely true that you know we, we should make a faster uh, shift to renewable energy in the power sector, right? Even that is actually a, a pretty monumental exercise. So what we're saying is, in order for us to electrify our power, we need to be scaling renewables by three times at the amount that we have been doing on an annual at an annual pace over the last five mm. years. Now that's before I even like throw in dreaded words like supply chain and you know permitting and and whatnot, right? And so it's it's an example of one where I wish there was a magical wand we can wave and say you know. We're already in this 3x world, right? Now we are working with clients now that are thinking about how do I scale for this growth? What is mm -hmm. the talent that I need? You know, how many people do I need? Where do all these parts get manufactured? Mm -hmm. So I think it's the it's the it's the beauty of actually being in the machine room in the business. You actually see the see all of the pieces that need to come together to for for this world to um, to come about in 2030. Just I'm, I'm just using that as one example of scaling the renewables business, right? So I think each one of these, once you get a bit closer to the details that matter, it become a, a bit clearer on, it is actually a complex change. And we shouldn't actually, you know, just look past it and say, it's pretty easy to do, let's just get on with it. Mm. You know, the point that Bill Gates makes in his most recent book is that some of these solutions for our energy crisis haven't even been invented yet. So how do you sort of um, how do you sort of navigate that, and how do you advise clients uh, in the energy sector to navigate this idea of the the things that we can't yet see that actually also might be solutions? Yeah, I come back to we have to operate in th on three time horizons, right? The here and now for the next couple of years, the time horizon through twenty thirty, and then the one about about after twenty thirty. So just to take an example of what Bill is trying to bring to life, right? There was a lot of um, articles and discussion in the public domain around nuclear fusion mm. that came up just about three or four months ago, the excitement around the fact that we were able to actually show positive progress on nuclear fusion. In our wildest dreams, if we were able to scale that up, you know, it's not 
um, it's not till 2030 or 2035, probably some would say it's more like 2040, right? Mm. That's an example of something we should be working on now. So it's not something, therefore, we shouldn't shy away from it, right? Because we are going to need those solutions in the 2035 to 2050 timeframe. Mm. And then there's the the notion of the what do we need to do over the next 10 years? That's the simplest thing. Well, I say it's the simplest. The thing we need to be doing is is to be scaling renewables in the next 10 years. So it's really, you know, a matter of, you know, and to take a very, very simple uh, metaphor here, we need to be walking while chewing gum, right? <laughs> so, and this is part of the, the the challenge for the industry and the executives in the industry is to make sure that they're able to configure their businesses in a way where people can think in these three different time horizons. Walking and chewing gum, sprinting and running a marathon. The fact is that resilience is built over time through tests, trials and perseverance. Whether we are runners or business leaders, the pressure that we face on our individual journeys can either cause us to crack, or in the best case scenario, to reach heights that we didn't dare dream possible. It's how Meb views one of the biggest races of his life. The moment in 2014, when he returned to Boston to run the marathon a year after the horrific and deadly 2013 Boston bombings. The visualization is important when you train in preparation for a big moments. For example, in 2013, when the bombing happened, Boston rose. Boston strong was a metaphor. And I remember after the bombing, ESPN asked me, are you going to come back? Are you scared to bring your family? But I remember telling her, I hope to be healthy enough to win it for the people. So those goals are met. The talk about pressure, putting yourself up there. And that's what I did. And I remember before the gun even went off, I wrote a vict- the victim's name, Sean, Martin, Crystal, and Ling, to be able to draw inspiration. So it becomes energy that you, what's your purpose, but also those people cheering on you. I remember just a mile 17, 18, people are chanting USA, USA. People are doing the waves. And I'm like, I start going through it. I'm like, USA, USA. But I'm like, focus on the race now. You can do that later because the pressure it was heavy. Mm. I was in the lead from mile five all the way to probably 23 when it was almost getting close. And I've been chased now and I'm thinking I do a lot of visualization. I had a dream that it came to me and somebody else at the finish line where the bombing happened on Boylston Street. So a lot of contemplation happens in your mind. Should I slow down, save my energy and see what I, and see what I can do? But if uh, runners, if you slow down, they're going to catch up to you. Once they catch up to you, they have the mental edge. So you don't want to play their games. You want to play your game. And trust me, I was in pain. And you want to like, you want to drop out. You're hurting. And, but you do the small things. The small things that get you to the finish line. Posture, form, use a crowd, the energy of the spirit of the victims. As I make a right on Herford before the finish line, before Boylson, I just sprinted as hard as I could. And uh, coming on Boylson, I just crossed myself. I said, I know it looks like the finish line is right there, but I know for a fact it's about 600 meters. So don't sprint too early. Don't cramp up. Use the crowd to your advantage. And what a great honor it was to be able to put the victory for all of us and chanting USA, USA, where the bombing happened and became the first American in 31 years to win it and to lead the 36,000 others to, who wanted to do something really positive. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week for our season finale as we look to the future.